Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, and the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. Well, it's been over a month since our last podcast, uh, which happened on the 29th of June. And um, I, I obviously, uh, you know, it, it's been summer. It's been uh, real busy for me personally. Uh, and I'm really happy to welcome um, an, an old friend of the show that is uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing's Greg Prince. And uh, I appreciate you helping me jumpstart this podcast again, Greg. Happy to be here, Sam. Welcome to August. And, and welcome to August. And, and I'm going to leave it up to you as to how we start. Uh, you know, you and I obviously weren't able to prep too much, which I'm actually happy about. I'd like to, uh, you to just, whatever's on your mind when it comes to the legacy of the Brooklyn Dodgers, New York Giants, uh, and having to do with the Mets, uh, take it away, please. Okay, well, I was going to say uh, uh, August 2014, not unlike July 2014, uh, no, no new games from either the uh, Dodgers or Giants, uh, respectively. Uh, they both have been off the schedule since 1957, but I did notice uh, today, uh, thanks to our friend Gary Mintz, the New York Giants Preservation Society for bringing it to my attention anyway, because I did not uh, read the Daily News uh, until he brought it up, that the uh, John T. Brush Stairway has uh, officially been reopened, renovated, refurbished, reopened, and the uh, one thing I guess we're waiting for is um, to uh, have a, a bit of ceremony to welcome it back into the New York landscape. So that that piece of Polo Grounds history uh, lives again. And that's fantastic uh, to hear. Have you been up to that area while they were doing construction? Um, I have not been up there since before construction began, I guess. Uh, So to answer your question, no. But, uh, you know, I I did uh, have gotten peeks at it over the years and did think that, uh, you know, that, that anything that is still connecting us in the present to how we got here was certainly worth repairing and making available to the people of New York. So it's you know, really exciting to see the pictures uh, that the, the Daily News had and some other folks po- posted on Facebook. And uh, you know, through, through the hard work of people like Gary Mintz and um, you know, the Mets as well as the both the baseball and football giants, the the Jets and the Yankees, all, all of whom uh, called the Polo Grounds home, each chipped in. They did some fundraising mm-hmm. uh, aside. The city uh, kicked in, and uh, you know it's it's as it, <laughs> as if it's uh, 1913, and uh, you you want to make your way uh, up those stairs. Uh, the only thing that's missing, unfortunately, is a baseball game. Exactly, and if you're ever around those areas, they're very surreal. I can only imagine what it was like, what what it is like uh, to go back to those areas, and you know, if you've been to a game or if you're a player or or what have you. Um, because for me, uh, as somebody who wasn't around to actually see another structure and one that looks absolutely nothing like the structures that are there now, it, it's it you it's hard to imagine, even if you've seen the pictures of Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds as to where they actually stack. It's very, very surreal to really figure out what your environment would be like, what, how you would feel with the structures that you've seen in the, in the photos for so many times actually being there. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, mostly, you know, you, you encounter modernity, but if you peer hard enough, you see ghosts, or you certainly feel their <laughs> presence, uh, whether you're you're up there at uh, 155th and uh, or 157th and 8th Avenue uh, in in between that area, or of course, Bed, you know, Bedford Avenue and Sullivan Place. But um, you know, it's it, it is difficult even now. You know, I, I go to, going to City Field, knowing where Shea Stadium was, a place mm-hmm. that I went to hundreds of times, literally. And you know, the, the first few years, I would peer out the the window of the seven train, and you know, f- feel as if a a limb was missing. <laughs> and now I'm used to the idea that that's a parking lot there. And you know, certainly before uh, before a game, sometimes, especially if I'm going with somebody who hasn't been to City Field yet, I'll I'll take them on a little tour and say, here's where uh, here's where home plate was, and here's where the pitcher's mound was, because they have that marked off. But even now, it's getting a little odd to remember, you know, to to, to use the uh, horriest cliche possible. There used to be a ballpark here, and uh, to picture it, more importantly. So certainly for the polo grounds and for Ebbets Field, especially for those of us who weren't lucky enough to to inhabit them, uh, you know, it takes a little imagination. But fortunately. Uh, you know the resources are there, and certainly uh, we are willing to commit our imagination to uh, to seeing what used to be there. And again, the uh, the staircase is just a, a nice touch. I mean, I think the the thing that really makes it stick out is that they restored the uh, the, the lettering that said it was you know mm-hmm. presented uh, to the city of New York uh, by the New York Giants and. You have to stop and pause and say, "What were the New York Giants?" And uh, you know, hopefully, uh, somebody uh, will, will be moved as, as they're just walking up and down those stairs to say, "Oh, that's that." At the very least, they'll say, "Oh, that's that baseball team that used to be here." And right. Maybe if you get somebody and, in and the right the frame thing. of mind, they they, they can uh, you know elaborate and uh, you know bring bring people into that uh, bit of history that uh, now, th- thanks to the restoration, uh, sort of lives on. And right, and it doesn't say there the new, you know, presented by the New York baseball giants. Right. And so for a lot of people, and, and what what I, I talked about this on the podcast before, how cool it is that the, the New York football giant, that's actually their legal name, still. Um, yeah. And, that's and all would... those and all those teams. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say I was watching the uh, the Football Hall of Fame ceremonies this past weekend, uh, particularly Michael Strahan, the great giant, being inducted, and he referred to the football giants. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a guy whose career began in 1993. <laughs> so he was born, I suppose, uh, I guess you know, the early 70s. So the polo grounds is gone. The uh, The giants had not played in the... Uh, the football giants and had not played in the city of New York since uh, he was a baby, and not that he was from New York, and certainly the baseball giants long gone. And there is still, whether through legality or tradition, uh, the compunction to call it the New York football giants. And you know, when you say New York football giants, you are you are forced to think to yourself for at least a second, okay, if. There's a football giants. There must be some other kind of giants. Well, there were the baseball giants, and it, and it just uh, again, you know, op- opens up the conversation or at least the imagination for for at least a couple of minutes. Exactly, and, and when those teams do come back here, uh, you know, to play the New York Mets, I was thinking about it. Um, 
just prior to coming on to this uh, the podcast how it's not as if they the teams cease to be it's not it's not like let's say the you know especially cuz the Mets are playing the Nationals this is a perfect example um the Montreal Expos franchise is no longer the Montreal doesn't actually have they have the Nationals to annoy them in terms of seeing those colors but it's not as if the Expos colors are still out there the Expos right. uniform and identity is not out there uh but you know you have the Giants and the Dodgers still very prominent brands of baseball um, and even if they, even when they're losing, those, those still the giant and the Dodger emblems and, and identity and just brand that, that it is still world-renowned and, and purchased and, and worn and what have you. Um, and so it's funny, you know, when they play the New York Mets, it's just like it, another reminder constantly in front of you, especially because they, they always play really intense games that, that, are, that are some of the best baseball we'll see, good and bad, you know. Some of the best baseball we'll see, and sometimes with the New York Mets, you just see some really awful, awful things occur against these teams. But uh, it, 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 it's just it's, it's a fascinating thing to me to, to constantly have this reminder. Oh, by the way, these guys have you know abandoned you is the only you know is the only reason you exist. Yeah, and uh, you know we we just saw the Giants come to City Field for four games, three three of them hard fought, as uh, you implied. The Mets won one of them, and the Giants won the other two, plus one blowout uh, for the Giants. Um, the Dodgers were here in May, and you know you 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 still get that uh, you know. I, I I guess in some cases it's the same people, although probably unfortunately fewer and fewer who were rooting for those teams when they were New York and Brooklyn, respectively. And you get some people who, who picked up the gauntlet. Uh, we heard you, and we... I'm sorry. Sorry, go uh, ahead. That was the uh, the commercial on the game day all of a sudden coming on. Go ahead. Okay. It's uh, <laughs> going to say sometimes you get the, uh, you know, you get the second, third generation probably now of Giant Dodger fans uh, from, from, you know, who are descended from, from, shall we say, the last generation who actually saw them as New York and Brooklyn teams. And you just have people who, uh, you know, maybe they're just transplants from California who show up rooting for those teams, and some of them, quite frankly, may just be front runners. Uh, New York is not, not immune to those. So sometimes people just pick teams even though they, they live somewhere else. Uh, I, I've never understood that. I guess it's more and more possible yeah. these days because of things like game day and you know you you have the ability to to follow teams uh, you know my my partner Jason Fry at Faith and Fear just wrote a a piece about you know what it's like when he misses a game now uh if he has to work or something and you know that it's really you know, you're you're not left out in the cold because of you know MLB dot com and you, know, you can watch the highlights depending on what kind of package you have and um and certainly, it's you know co- things are constantly updated on the internet, constantly tweeted about, and you're really not at a loss. Versus the way it was, you know, he, in his uh, in his write up of it, you know, less than 30 years ago, where uh, if you were in another part of the country, away from New York, and say the Mets were playing in California, say they were playing the Dodgers, Giants, or Padres, um, you know, maybe you maybe you got an AP write up. The next day, maybe you had to wait another day uh, to read 
a box score because the game just ended too late, and, and nowadays, of course, it's a totally different story. So if you are sitting here in New York and for some reason you, you were uh, at some impressionable moment in your life decided, I want to be a San Francisco Giant fan, it has nothing to do with John McGraw and nothing to do with Willie Mays, uh, that's possible, and you could you know fill in the name of any team, and conversely, as you know, we've discovered at Faith and Fear, and, uh, and you know, can certainly find it anywhere on the internet. There are Mets fans who've never lived in New York, who've never been to New York, mm-hmm. and they just decided, "I like the Mets." Um, which you know, that that part is fine with me. It's the people who live in New York and decide to be be fans of uh, the Colorado Rockies or whoever uh, that I don't understand. But you know, it's free country to each his own. Uh, the marketplace will determine those things. All, all of those cliches. But um, you know, it is kind of fun when you when you go to a Met Giant game or even a Met anybody game, and you you see the the New York Giant cap in the stands, and obviously you see the mm-hmm. yeah. caps too. Uh, I get a bigger kick out of the Giant caps, uh, mostly because they look like the Met caps. And when you see that somebody has sort of gone to the trouble of wearing one, I figure it either means that a they're they're a Giant fan and they want to come see a baseball game tonight anyway if the Giants aren't playing, or they're kind of making a statement. And, you know, we, we, we've discussed the whole uh, Dodger-Giant history imbalance at City Field, and, you know, I don't really need to delve into that uh, again. <laughs> but um, it, it's just nice knowing, again, you know, when you can connect the game you're going to tonight or the game you're watching on TV with something that happened, uh, in this case, you know, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, teams that, uh, that have left town, um, that's great. And, and like you said, the fact that those trademarks are, are still active and that the teams uh, still still carry those names I mean, it's a it's just a, a different thought than you know the St. Louis Browns are now the Baltimore Orioles and nobody really cares in, in Baltimore right. I imagine about St. Louis and unless they're you know real real buffs whereas if you're a Giant fan a Dodger fan maybe you know the Braves and the A's and um, I'm not necessarily you got to say think of it excuse me I said we got to say Philly. Yeah. As yeah. well. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're... Sometimes you, know, you forget if, that... It, it, it... Go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, no. I'm just, I'm just saying that the, team, the teams that, that, that managed to keep the franchise names, uh, that, that didn't change them. And again, I guess the, uh, you know, the, the Orioles, Browns, the Senators, Rangers, the Senators, Twins, and now the Expos Nationals, you know, there, there is that gap, whether it's, nice. you know, perceived or real, whereas... The Giants, certainly the Dodgers in their own way, uh, have, have striven to, uh, or have strived, strove, I'm not sure if I've got my past participles right, but uh, <laughs> they've made an effort to uh, to, to keep that uh, connection alive. Exactly, and, and even with the Twins, the Twins and the, and the uh, original Senators have Harmon Killebrew um, to, to connect them back to, and I don't know what kind of... Um, history there is in the ballpark out there of the Senators' history, but I, I guarantee you it's probably more Expos' history. It, it, it's more than the Expos' history in the Nationals' park. And I haven't been there, but I've heard well, literally the, nothing. And, and well, so if, if you they, they, even in terms of the retired numbers. Yeah, well, they showed on, uh, on the telecast last night from Nationals' park, and they've had it up there for a few years. There is a, uh, or are uh, signage is signage up for uh, for Carter and for Dawson. Uh, I'm trying to remember if they, I guess for Rusty too. Uh, all of you know with, with little um, 
M Montreal logos and their numbers. I mean, they haven't taken those numbers out of circulation for the Nationals, right? But but they are acknowledged on the facing uh, inside the stadium. So at least they they've added that. Uh, I couldn't tell you what they have in Minnesota. I know that they've done a great job in you know making the target field as twin centric as possible. I, right. I, don't know to what extent they've uh, claimed Walter Johnson <laughs> or uh, you know any of Mickey Vernon or you know Goose Goslin, any of the, of the great senators. But uh, then again, you know the, the Nationals uh, did a lot of that. Uh, you know that they have sort of framed right. their history as part of a continuum of the first senators, the second senators. Uh, certainly, uh, you know the, the Negro League teams that played in Washington, leading all into the uh, the birth of, of the Washington Nationals. And you know, I, I, then again, I, I also happened to notice last night at least a couple of Expos caps in the crowd at Nationals Park, which was kind of interesting. So, well, I don't it does know sound if, like you know, especially after those those um, you know you saw those exhibition games. Uh, it seems like the Expos brand is trying as hard as it can to make a comeback. In uh, who who knows how it's going to happen, but I I would love to see, and this is really nothing against oh, God. Um, uh, sorry to break my concentration, but Nice is falling apart. Yeah, I'm this sure is not watching good. I'm watching from across the room without my glasses on, but I can see it's three nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, Laroche, it 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 doesn't look Ooh. like it looks like they're hitting him and seeing him very well. And he's been worry, uh, worrying me for a bit right now, but uh, we'll get back to that. We'll talk some uh, some modern Mets uh, in a little bit. Um, but uh, remind me again where, where we were. We were talking about the Expos brand and its uh, revival here. Oh, so the Expos brand, I, you know, I, I, I was going to say that it, it seems as if it, its best chance of coming back would be Tampa Bay. Yeah, which, of course, would be a shame for the – people in Tampa Bay who actually care about the Rays. Uh, you know, every time you move a team, there's there's two sides of the story. It was great that Washington re-entered Major League Baseball in 2005. It was a crime that there was no baseball in our nation's capital since 1971. But, you know, I always felt bad for, for the people of Montreal and the people who who really cared or you know, as I like to say, you know, Mont- the the Expo version of me, um, and there's certainly a, a lot of those people. Uh, you know, the, the fact that they had such terrible attendance their last few years was was not an indication of, of what kind of support there was for baseball in Montreal. And you know, those exhibition games kind of bear that out. The fact that you are seeing Expo caps, the fact that there was a uh, pretty, uh, and I know it certainly sold well in Canada. Uh, that, that came out about the Expos this year by Jonah Carey up, up and away. Uh, so all those things have, you know, at, at the very least have, have given some cachet to what would, I think, in another era, be kind of a forgotten franchise. I mean, you know, I, uh, imagine the St. Louis Browns having any kind of revival uh, after they disappeared. And, you know, I'm sure there are people who, who cared but uh, it's just different today, whether it's the Internet and uh, the kind of the collapsing of distances. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the Expo brand uh, you know, d- does exist again. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, the Rays, uh, I, I, I'm not a Rays fan by any means, but you know, I, I went to school in that area. I went to college in Tampa, and we didn't have a major league team at the time. And they always talked about So uh, for now, yeah, unfortunately, 
Um, for all you Met fans out there, um, I'm not sure if you're even watching, uh, but uh, Anthony, it looks like he started off the inning with Denard Span grounding out, but then Anthony Rendon doubled on the, let's see if I can see this, on the second pitch, which is a 14-89-mile-per-hour uh, fastball, and then Jason Worth singled um, on on a 73-mile-per-hour uh, curveball, which obviously must have not been uh, a good curveball if that happened. Um, and and then Adam LaRoche on an 88-mile-per-hour cutter homered. Uh, I'm not sure where he homered to, but it, it looks like we got Greg back. Let's see. Uh, we got you back, Greg? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> Oh man, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, little, um, little, little gremlins. Greg, sound like you're breaking up uh, there, but maybe I can conference you in or something. Um, are you there, Greg? Yes, I am. Um, let me let me try. We're going to go silent for about ten to fifteen seconds while I try to conference Greg in by adding the call. And let's see if this works. One second, guys. Yeah, the, uh, the the wonders of uh, Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Hopefully. Uh, well, I, I was just, uh, just going to finish up a, a quick thought as, as we seem to be uh, uh, t- taking a trip around the, uh, the, the map of uh, franchises that have uh, disappeared and franchises that are in danger of disappearing. Um, I was just going to say I lived in Tampa. I went to the college down there in the early 80s. There was no major league team, and they always talked about getting one, and I think they, they saw it as a, as a way of elevating their status that we are truly a big league city if we have a baseball team, even though they already had an NFL team at that point. And, you know, supposedly the, the Rays get good TV ratings and people are, are interested in them, and, and they've had a really competitive team for years, but nobody shows up to their teams. <laughs> and, you know, nobody shows up uh, at playoff time, which is, uh, or you know, certainly not sellouts. And, you know, so to me, that that's kind of uh, as, as bad as the stadium is considered and it's not, not a super convenient location and the economy mm-hmm. is certainly a factor. You've got a team in the playoffs, and uh, you've, you've got this model franchise. So um, I'm not rooting for it to get up and leave because, you know, people don't deserve that to happen, but uh, they, they might be more at home if uh, Montreal ever, ever got a suitable ballpark. I don't know. Exactly. Uh, you know, Montreal getting a suitable ball, ballpark, Tampa Bay getting a suitable ballpark. Um, what I would uh, imagine what's happening with Tampa Bay in terms of generational fan base is that, you know, you had, uh, I, I, you know, the Mets were in St. Petersburg, of course, you know, um, and of course the, the Mets are in, uh, sorry, the Yankees are in Tampa now um, and have been for a while. So, you know, there's been obviously a lot of New York transplants, they all, as they say. Probably now more Yankee fans down there than Mets fans. Uh, but what you also probably have, I mean, this is the, the Tampa Bay Rays have been uh, a model franchise since 2008. Literally every year, nothing phases them except this year, although obviously they've, they've gotten a little, themselves a little bit back into the race now. Um, but you would imagine, though, that, you know, 2008 to 2014, there's all these children down there um, that, unfortunately, it might take a while, but maybe that's where the sellouts will come 
is maybe five to ten years when when those Yankee and Mets fans are filtered out. Well, you would hope so. Um, you know that that is also dependent on how important baseball is uh, to that generation, and that's you know certainly more than a Tampa Bay uh, concern. Uh, you know, you're you're growing mm-hmm. up though with this local team that's in the playoffs almost every year, though, or that at least has a winning record every year, although they, you know, again, having to let David Price go for economic reasons is not the best advertisement. Uh, right, true, for, true. For, for saying uh, this is a franchise of the future. But, uh, you know, I'm thinking about it, the, the last round of expansion, or the two rounds of expansion, I guess, you know, yielded what, the Rockies, the Marlins, the Diamondbacks, and the Rays. They've all had their moments competitively, but are, are any of them really an incredibly healthy franchise that, you know, has just, you know, kept people coming through the door? And, you know, you look at attendance, you have to say, not really. Um, but, you know, again, you know, the, the, the Diamondbacks are having a terrible season. The Rockies are having a terrible season. The, the Marlins aren't doing too badly, but they're also, you know, there's so much ill will down there toward ownership and, and all they've been put through and we discussed the Rays, uh, it, it just makes you wonder sometimes um, you know, how much baseball can maintain in the way of franchise, or how many they can maintain. I mean, ideally, mm-hmm. you would add a 31st and a 32nd team, I would think, and you could stop with this uh, interleague play every day nonsense and have four divisions of, of four apiece or, you know, whatever. But um, you, I, nobody talks about expansion anymore. I mean, ideally, you would leave Tampa Bay in Tampa Bay and put a team in Montreal and put another team, I don't know where else exactly. But, um, you know, there, there are a lot of issues, I suppose, to the long-term health of baseball. I mean, it seems to be making a lot of money, but you, uh, you wonder, uh, especially uh, just coming off the, uh, the World Cup and all the interests uh, that we see in soccer, maybe finally 40 years of, of kids playing soccer may be coming to fruition. Uh, what is baseball's future? And, and are there future Stoneham's and O'Malley's in other cities that are just going mm-hmm. to pack up and say, as Horace Stoneham did, I feel bad for the kids, but I haven't seen their uh, their fathers come to the ballpark lately. Right, exactly. And although uh, with the, uh, the U.S. team, they still can't score. Um, they can defend, but they don't seem to be able to get that ball on the goal uh, if you were paying any attention to, to their game. I'm sorry? Oh, in terms of uh, the U.S. soccer team, uh, they still can't score. Um, they oh, can defend, still, but they, they still can't score. I'm not sure if you were paying attention okay. to any of those games. Is it during the World Cup? Yeah. Uh, you know what? I, got, I, I watched I, mean, I, I, yeah, I got caught up a, a little bit for the U.S. I, I watched one game, or one match, excuse me, between uh, – <laughs> Argentina, no, not Argentina, Brazil and Chile. See, it's, it's been almost two months I've already forgotten. Um, I wasn't really caught up in it, but all, mostly because it reminded me of one of these games that went into extra time and needed a shootout. And I think the reason I got caught up in it is because it kind of reminded me of the Mets Astro playoff game from 1986. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's just more, uh, more evidence that uh, if anything exists and I can connect it to baseball, then I will. So I'm, I'm not soccer's demographic, I suppose. <laughs> Well, it, you know, when you're in the city during World Cup time, it's hard to ignore it. You know, it's just there's such a buzz going on, and yeah, it's, that, it's that always, it's fun. always. 
I, I happened to be one day during the tournament, uh, Sunday, uh, I was going, we were, my wife and I were going to see a show and we went out for lunch on 9th Avenue and every place had TV on to, I believe it was Mexico and the Netherlands. And, you know, you hear cheering up and down 9th Avenue, uh, whether it was from the Netherlands or Mexico, I'm, I'm not certain, but, yeah, I would think it would be the Netherlands only because, you know, New, New York used to be New Amsterdam. <laughs> so maybe some, you, you, want, you want to talk about uh, legacy. legacy. There you go. But, um, uh, it might have been a little different in the restaurant where we were and the kitchen staff seemed to be rooting for Mexico. Right. But, right. Um, you know, I was thinking this was the time of, the time of day was just as the Mets and Pirates were starting to play. And I had my, my radio with me as I carried my radio with me everywhere uh, if I'm ever going to a play or a movie or whatever when the Mets are playing. <laughs> and I knew that I would eventually be, you know, we had some time after lunch and before the show, we were sitting out in some public space somewhere. And I had put, you know, I put Josh and Allie on and listened to the Mets, the Mets game. And I was thinking, like, am I the only person in New York doing this right now? And <laughs> is, there, is there a single television in any of these bars or restaurants that has, you know, a baseball game on it? You know, you, you have that, that classic image of walking up and down the street in Brooklyn in the 40s mm-hmm. and the early 50s and the idea that you could follow the, the Dodgers every step of the way because every radio had Red Barber on. And it's like, you know, that's what you had that day, but it wasn't baseball. It was soccer. And I understand, you know, this was, you know, the World Cup, the World Championship of Soccer. I understand it was a big deal. But it, it seemed to kind of transcend for those few weeks, mm-hmm. uh, whether in the city or wherever you were. And it's just a strange feeling that, you know, again, I, much like you do, I'm sure, I, I set my internal clock to the Met game every day. Right, and right, exactly. Either I'm, going to be, either I'm going to plant myself in front of it, I'm going to go to it, I'm going to listen to it, and if I can't do any of those things, I will, I will find a way to do some one of those things. And to realize how that is probably not what, you know, not to do, I mean, I've been doing that since I was a kid. Like, it's probably not what kids do necessarily. But, um, you know, that, that's a whole other uh, conversation, I suppose. Well, I'm actually sometimes... Um, I don't know why surprised when I, I see as many kids as I do. Uh, you know, and especially lately, um, it seems as if a lot of people are recognizing that uh, this could be a fun team, um, you know, and, and it could be an even greater team uh, coming up in the near future. And uh, I, I don't know whether, it, you know, we're, we're becoming less angry about everything that's gone on uh, or recognize that, they're on the cusp and they need our help. Uh, but, but something's different and you certainly feel, feel the, the buzz in the air. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, we are at that point where there's no good reason to wallow in how terrible they've been. I, mean, I think we, we've done that for the last five or so years. And, you know, I, I certainly, went through a phase, and maybe I'm still trying to shake it off completely, of thinking, yeah, I want them to win, but I almost have this sense of why bother winning a random game in the middle of June against Milwaukee when it's not going to lead to anything. 
save these wins for when you need them, as if you could save, <laughs> save these wins and bring them out in, the, in a year where you're truly contending. And, but now I don't really feel that way. And, I, again, I'm, I'm not carried away by a team that's, I think, seven games out, but well under 500 still. Um, but more to the point that you, know, you, you can now see the pieces kind of coming together in, in a way that you don't feel like you're, you're hitting yourself or that they're pulling the wool over your eyes. Um, and, and it's definitely had a different sensation of being at City Field the last two homestands. I was uh, at the one right before the All-Star break, and I went to one game against the Phillies right after. And it just didn't feel quite as futile and even bitter as it had right. earlier in the season. It, it feels like, again, I don't want to carry away, but it, it, it feels like something is in the process of legitimately coming together. And I guess, you know, you get enough young pitching and you get at least a couple of young players who start to produce and do wonderful things in the field, uh, you know, you don't feel like a sucker, basically. So, so here's my question for you. Was that a pun when you said young? Uh, <laughs> no, because I, I, would, I would not necessarily connect the name young to the thought of... Uh, young pitching. Yeah, I, yes, I would, I would use low... Lowercase, uh, not not uh, alluding to any particular outfielders named Young that uh, need no, to not that need to not be on this team. Need to not be there. Well, I have to say we're, we're, we we are making progress. I think as a people, in that we are now down to complaining about Chris Young, who plays um, too much. We we agree, but it's not like you know the heart of the lineup. Like, in other words, like, we used to complain about Chris Young and Lucas Duda and right. Ruben Zahada and maybe Travis Darno if we were getting impatient and Curtis Granderson and, and you know, any, any number of release pitchers. And now it's like, you know, because as fans, we, we need to have somebody that we're convinced needs to go so we can replace him with somebody better and then all our dreams will come true. We're pretty much down to Eric. I'm not going to Bobby Abreu. So we're down to right. Eric, not Eric Young, excuse me, Chris Young. And I was like, you know, when Chris Young left, but then, then the uh, I think sites would turn on to Eric Young, who hasn't really done anything lately. That's true. <laughs> so, yeah. But he's but, still, yeah. you know, I still see Eric Young Jr. as more valuable uh, and, and taking up less space than than uh, than a Chris Young right now. Especially yeah, because Eric, Eric Young has a Eric Young has a definable competency. You know how important <laughs> it is and how effective it is 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 another story. I mean, Chris Young does, does do one thing. Well, and I'm not going to say cash or paycheck. He actually, <laughs> you know, has shown power at City Field. If I either, if not all, but almost all of his home runs have been, have been pulled to right field at City Field. If maybe hit one on the road. So I was at the game uh, the Saturday before the All Star break, uh, where they came back and they beat the Marlins. Uh, also known as the Huey Lewis game, if, if uh, that were to sell. And Chris Young, you know, did a dramatic pinch hit, pinch hit home run to uh, to tie the game, and mm-hmm. I, I, I would argue it was uh, probably the most exciting, dramatic swing of the season to at least to that point. Uh, perhaps Lucas Duda in Milwaukee has popped since, but you know he he is capable. The problem is is that he is also incredibly infrequent, and you know you. you Honestly, what is today? August sixth, as we speak, uh, September first, 
is three and a half weeks away. Sandy Alderson, in, in his wisdom, uh, said something to the effect of when he was asked about what about uh, Matt Decker who's tearing it up in AAA, when you're going to bring him up, and, and you know, implicitly, when you're going to get rid of Chris Young, he's like, well, you know, September 1st is pretty close. So, which is his way of saying, like, I'm not going to do anything because, you know, I can only do one thing at a time, if that. And, you know, so we're basically looking at three and a half weeks of Chris Young being a factor at most. Because once September 1st comes, then you're just riding out the string and Chris Young can go sit on the bench the way, you know, say Brian Schneider did when they were bringing up Josh Tolley. And uh, you don't really have to see that much of Chris Young because, you know, he's not going to be back next year. But um, Chris no, Young he's aside, not. <laughs> you know, but Chris, Chris Young aside, and I think, I think we're kind of proving a lot of people's points about how much fans are by, by harping on the one guy who really isn't getting it done. Um, you know, again, this, this pitching is, is beautiful to watch, uh, John Neese tonight uh, notwithstanding. And, you know, so watching Lagares do his thing again and watching Darno get comfortable as a hitter and still kind of learning as a catcher, um, it's the kind of things you want to see. You used a phrase before, a fun team. That's something people say when a team isn't winning a lot. It's, it's the transitional phase from a bad team to a good team. They're a fun team. And, you know, you, you have to be a bit of a connoisseur to really appreciate what that entails to say, you know, we're, we're watching a team get better, we're watching individuals get better. It's not going to pay off every night. Some nights it's going to be, you know, just torture in a very, you know, baseball sense. Uh, you know, you're going to lose 9 nothing the way the Mets did on Sunday, or you're going to have a, a weird game like last Friday night where, uh, you know, you just pitched almost a complete game and still lost 5-1 to one and, and in two hours. Or, or like the, the game on, on Monday afternoon against the Giants, where they they blew a three-two lead. Uh, they stopped hitting, and then we're were you the, there? We, uh, no, I was not. I did not go to any Giant game this time around. So I was at that. I was at Monday. <laughs> okay, so you know it's just proof of you know that it's a uh, it's a process, which is you know something you don't really want to think about, but you know the process seems to be moving in the right direction, and the mood seems to be lightening. And, you know, I had one, well, I can make all the goals I want for the best. It doesn't really matter. I'm not on the team. But, you know, I had one desire coming out of the All-Star break, you know, from when they were playing really well before, which was 67 games remained at the time. So go 34 and 33. That's not going to get you to 500 for the season, but it would say that, you know what, they did not fold up for the second half or the, you know, theoretical second half you know, more than 81 games that had been played already. But, uh, you know, don't disappear on us the way you have every year for the last four right. or five years. And so far, they're 9 and... It's interesting. I think they're 9-9 they're nine and nine since the uh, All-Star it's break. It feels, like, it feels like they're more than that, which is, you know, on one hand, disappointing but on the, that they, they haven't won more than nine games. But on the other hand, the fact that it doesn't feel like they've completely gone down the drain is, is a nice feeling. Yeah. And uh, it, it brings you to the, the precipice of next year, as uh, the folks in Brooklyn uh, like to talk about, and uh, the sense that instead of just going through the motions, where we can actually look forward to something. But but here here's the question, though. How can you legitimately bring a prospect up that – has been hitting 300 consistently in his time in the in the minor leagues at every level. Uh, how can you have him ride the bench right now and have that 
be uh, how I just don't get this whole Ruben Tejada thing. Like um, with Will I, don't, I mean, I don't get it either, unless there's you know just such insecurity about Flores' defense. Although at this point, I but you look, but you look at it. Yeah, I haven't seen yeah, anything. I haven't that, seen like, a disaster. Seen, I haven't seen a butcher, and God knows we've seen you know terrible fill-in shortstops or guys playing out of position. And you know he has in limited capacity has taken some really good swings for us. That is, and shown a little bit of power, a little, you know, certainly extra base power, if not home run power yet. And then he just sits, as you said. And whatever it is Tejada is bringing, and Tejada certainly made some important plays in last night's game, the one where, uh, you know, Zach Wheeler, by all rights, should have been gone after about four innings, and he hung in there, <laughs> which was fantastic. But, um, you know... I, I, even even if we were to say that, oh, well, you know, the Mets are still kind of in it, ergo, you want to play, you know, the, the, the proven guys, what is Ruben Tejada proven exactly other than he can hit and he can kind of field? Uh, let, let's get the guy who we think can hit, who, who did everything he was asked to do while in the minor leagues, and see what he can do. And he is self-defeating, and it's something they've done Time after time again, they've been in the outfield this year. I, I don't understand you know, when they had Newenheis up and he, and he, you know, showed the flashes that, you know what, just send him out there against right-handed pitching. Uh, you know, if you really have to have Chris Young and Platoon Newenheis and Young, right now I have a Platoon Newenheis and Campbell. Um, maybe not, uh, you know, going to make anybody forget Cliff Floyd to uh, pick a left fielder at random, but... Uh, be better than keep sending Chris Young out there, who I, I think has had his audition. And the only thing I can say, you know, for, for Chris Young, besides the fact that once in a while he, he does, you know, scale those uh, dimensions at City Field, is he's not Jason Bay. He's not signed for four years. Uh, so, you know, there, there's no, well, let's get him on track because it's important that uh, we, we get Chris Young right for next year. Chris Young's going to be gone on, you know, after September 28th. And um, sorry, you've had, you you, know, you haven't done it. Um, and you know, even even if you suddenly start, what does that tell us? Because you're you're not going to be back next year unless this team suddenly got red hot as it was riding Chris Young's incredibly strong bat all the way to the playoff. Which you know, let's face it, is it going to happen? I, I just don't see the point. So whether it's New and Ice, whether it's Dan Decker, whether it's Flores, whether it's Andrew Brown, and you know, not some of these guys are necessarily world beater. The point is, we don't know. And <laughs> if, they, if they are doing what you sent them down to do, if they have gotten their backs in, into such a state that they are scalding, why put them in the deep freeze when they get up here? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and I don't, I don't understand why Sandy Alderson thinks that he shouldn't. I mean, why he should let Terry Collins do this? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I wonder <laughs> what the dynamic is there. If it's you know the word coming down from the front office, play this well, guy this or is, that this guy. This is a very important two months for Terry Collins because, yeah. and and even I think the thing is is that if if they make if they don't lose eighty eight games, and let's face it, if they lose eighty eight games, that means they're as bad as they've been. Literally, um, and uh, they really eighty 
87 or 86 shouldn't be it either, um, just because of where they are record-wise. Uh, so you you got to think that if if they're, let's say, 79 and 83, which would be a marginal improvement and bring you back to 2010 levels, um, <laughs> do you think that Terry Collins gets that second year of the contract because of Matt Harvey? Uh, yeah, I would say that anything short of a total implosion along the lines of 2012, specifically, where, you know, the, as, as we uh, both lived through, uh, it was just, you know, the vanishing act. Um, I think he's back. I think he's probably already secured uh, a return. He's already under contract, and, you know, the fact that they played... Uh, you know, they played very decently for now, coming out of six, eight weeks. Um, you know, again, nobody. You were, we're still. You know, we're now what four years into his term, and uh, you know, nobody's really said other than fans. <laughs> nobody's mm-hmm. ever really said anything bad about Terry Collins. You know, and again, you know, his his core competency is has a lot of the clubhouse communicates well, whatever that means. You know, sometimes I think this would be a good clubhouse to lose. <laughs> I think this would be, you know, somebody should get these guys mad. But, um, you know, they hired Collins for a reason. Again, I, I don't know how much input the front office has on the lineup. It, it feels as if these are Collins' ideas, to, that he has certain guys he views as security blankets, and Tejada is one of them. And, you know, Flores perhaps the opposite of that, that he's an unknown quantity, and, well, I've got to go with who I know because at least I can count on them. But, again, what are you counting on? You're counting on a guy who, you know, know, four for 32 at any given moment. And, you know, I can understand, you know, sticking with Granderson because Granderson can hit home runs and Granderson is being paid a lot of money. Uh, So, you know, you have a possible option. Again, you know, we don't have to necessarily coronate Wilmer Flores as the next shortstop, but give him a chance. What's what's the point otherwise? Yeah, it just it just doesn't make any sense. And I'd like to say though that it seems as if Nice doesn't really like Terry Collins all that much lately. Yeah, I wonder. Um, certainly, Nice to me is really kind of an interesting character, which I never thought I'd say because he's such a boring personality on the surface when you hear him talking, but it just seems like he's gathered like a little bit of chip on his shoulder with every outing. And uh, I mean, uh, Collins made an excuse for him after one of his most recent outings where he didn't want to come out when he took him out. Well, I think they screwed him up in that one specific one where they put him on the DL. I I think I agree with him that he shouldn't have necessarily come out. Yeah. But it wasn't Colin been. say that you know, San, you, know, the, you know Terry invoked his friendship with Sandy Koufax and said, oh, you know, Sandy Koufax said no pitcher ever wants to come out. But I think he probably mentioned Sandy Koufax just so he could remind Fred Wilpon that he's buddies with him too, and you know, please, please keep <laughs> me around. But um, you know, I, I, I like that Nice shows. You know, some, uh, this is a cliche, but yeah, he shows some fire. He shows that he. Wants to compete, and, and all of the, again, I, I'm just wild to cliche tonight. But um, the point is that he seems to have also peaked for the season, whether it's a shoulder issue or, or whatever it is. And, and yeah, the, the, the putting under the table list when they did seem to, as they say, too clever by half. Like he probably didn't have to go on, but they just figured they'd buy themselves some time. And 
give him the, the equivalent of a uh, you know two and a half three week vacation for his arm. And um, yeah, I get the feeling he he wasn't too thrilled about it. I get the feeling he just isn't too thrilled being here after all these years. And maybe he has the sense he's kind of correct, and maybe gets the feeling that uh, you know the New York just isn't for him. Uh, perhaps you remember the remarks he made at uh, at ESPN.com article a few weeks ago about um, he had a chance to kind of psychoanalyze Mets fans. That wasn't a very good article. But uh, the writer did get niece on the record basically saying, uh, in so many words, and I'm paraphrasing, like, Mets fans aren't really all that special. I think they, they don't really come out when they're not winning. And, you know, I, I thought that showed a, a certain disconnect. But, yet, yes, you were right. playing in front of three-quarter empty houses, but you were also not playing well, and your tickets cost money, which is something you might have forgotten. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think that, you know... Um, he doesn't understand exactly what the climate has been and, and is and was and whatnot. Uh, yeah, which is and, interesting because he's been here longer than almost anybody. <laughs> but I think you know, he's probably like all of these guys. You know what? They come to work and uh, they keep right. their head down and he's busy warming up in the bullpen or talking to Dan Wharton or whatever. And, yeah, that's fine. That's his job. But, uh, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with just saying uh, – our fans are great. We want we want to do the best for them. Uh, is that what you need? Thanks. Bye. Um, but yeah, hey, maybe maybe I shouldn't get on a guy who's trying to be honest because you know you, you don't always get that uh, openness out of ball players. But you know I haven't been that big a fan of Nice all these years. Um, it, it really goes back in my mind, and this is certainly not a reflection of his pitching, which has been up and down over the years. I got to meet him. Well, I actually met him a couple of times. The first time was uh, I was covering the Mets holiday party in 2011, and John Neese, the other day they have one player dress up as Santa and a couple are his quote-unquote elves, and Neese was one of the elves that year. And it just so happened the night before, there was a uh, show on the MLB Network where Bob Costas was interviewing Tom Seaver, of all people. And Tom Seaver, you know, can talk pitching all night long. And it was fascinating to listen to because this is a guy who, certainly to my mind, and, and I don't think too many people would disagree, like, knows more about pitching, thinks more about pitching, has thought more about pitching than most people have ever lived. Right. And Absolutely. So thinking, I, I've always, thinking, and by the way, I've always thought that about it. I yeah. Agree with you. Yeah. And, you know, he, he wasn't a great, you know, Seaver wasn't a great, you know, color commentator, wasn't a great announcer, but, you know, you start talking about the craft of pitching, you know, there's nobody to rather listen to. I mean, you know, other, you know, there's very few people, and you know, Pedro Martinez is like that, and there's some other guys uh, I can name, but uh, Seavers are on top of the class. I never mind the Tom Seavers, Tom Seaver. Okay, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's the next day, and I'm going to this, you know, the holiday party, and the next media people were gracious enough to invite me. And I'm excited because I'm going to get to interview Jonathan Neese, you know, along with a few other bloggers. And um, I think I'm going to talk to a major league pitcher. And here I've, I've got all these thoughts about pitching in my head and then the, the mindset and the process. And I can't wait to have a chance to ask a, a real major league pitcher how things work. And John Neese could not have been less interested or interesting. And he wasn't rude or anything, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, just in terms of pitching questions, and I don't remember what I asked him anymore. But he was like, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Maybe. Sure. Like, <laughs> Who are you? You're a major league pitcher. Pitchers are like, love to talk about pitching. 
you know, you don't have to be already thinking necessarily. <laughs> right. Can you can you at least uh, you know we're here in December. You don't have to put the glove over your mouth and be afraid that uh, somebody is going to pick up your trade secret. I'm I'm not asking you to uh, you know to tell us your uh, your show us your grip so uh, Ryan Zimmerman uh, find, finds out your secrets or anything. But um, it was just sort of disappointing. And then I so I just got this thing about. John Neese, where it's like, oh, God, like, doesn't deserve to pitch in the majors with an attitude like that. Uh, you know, and then, of course, being, being the uh, kind of uh, people fans are, you know, when you start pitching, well, I, I'm, of course, in his corner. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, so I've always had sort of, I, I won't call it a well-paid relationship, I've had, it's putting it too extreme on both sides, but uh, I, I guess I, I was happy to see him engaged uh, in, in his craft a little more than I thought he was capable of. Right. But, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you want, uh, you know, again, if, if, if you want people to expound at length on pitching, you know, find that interview with Seaver or uh, find the interview with Pedro Martinez or, or, or get five minutes uh, with Ari with Dickey. He'll tell you about life and pitching. I'll so, tell you, um, you know, Carl, let's, let's uh, you know, bring it back around. Carl Erskine uh, on this podcast, uh, he, can, he can go on about uh, a number yeah. of things, and, and he's... Um, of course, uh, pitching as well. And you know what? Now that you're mentioning it, I'm realizing that I don't think I've done enough of the craft of pitching with uh, Carl Erskine, and uh, I, I should certainly approach him uh, about that. I'm sure you're a great source. <laughs> exactly. Now, now, here's my question for you. What is their plan for Wally Backman? That's a good question. I think they probably thought Wally Backman would get himself ejected or arrested or uh, basically uh, not not be the effective manager he's been, and they wouldn't have to worry about this. So if, if they are, you know, in, I was say, in love with Terry Collins, so they're committed to Terry Collins for one more year, you know, what can they do with Backman other than saying, you know, God, you're such a great mentor. We need you in Las Vegas or say... You've earned a place on the major league staff. Where I'm not sure, uh, depending on you know, who else would be there, because if they're not going to offer him the big job at this point, yeah, you got to figure Wally Backman must be thinking I have, a, I must have options. I mean, I've I've stayed out of trouble for ten years or more. I've, you know, they're going to. I don't know if not looked at the Pacific Coast League standings, but I assume they're going to go to the playoffs. I know they were doing pretty well. Just before they start bringing everybody up, um, I, I think he's he's earned his stripes. Um, it's interesting. Wally Backman was last he met in 1988, so we're talking at this point what 27 years as of next year since Backman you know, was our guy, and I wonder how important the whole '86 Met aura and just the general Wally Backman aura is at this point to anybody uh, other than, you know, we know that he was quote-unquote a winner. And, you know, I guess anybody who put that on that team was a winner. But, you know, certainly Wally Backman is always that guy who kind of symbolizes will do anything to win, and he's, you know, done a great job uh, through the minor leagues. I, I just wonder if you had a chance or a reason to replace Collins, would you go after, and I can't even think of a good name right now, but, Let's just say, for argument's sake, um, uh, Joe Madden was on the market. <laughs> uh, would you go out and get a big name like that? 
or would you just, if, if you were the Mets, just, you know, go with another, a Bob Guerin type or because they probably don't think a field manager means that much? Or would they say, you know what, we're promoting within and who's more of a, a candidate than Wally Backman? But, you know, I, just, I can't get over the idea that if they wanted Wally Backman up here, he'd be here. And, you know, he certainly served well, uh, his I think they might be looking at it um, as that in 2016, it's, it, we're going to not only uh, be ripe for uh, for contention, but ripe for Wally Backman to lead us into contention. And maybe this is something that is kind of an understanding, which is why he's been so comfortable uh, just in Las Vegas, because he understands that just like Davey Johnson told him, um, instead of taking a job with him, Davey Johnson said that they have a plan for you. And uh, when you look at it, they they haven't probably trusted the major league roster enough to want him up there. Now I still think he would have made a difference, but they probably really maybe want him to be a part of that when it's uh, it's as ripe for contention as it, as it's probably going to be with what hopefully looks like uh, some really good position players starting to develop in this farm system. Yeah, I wonder. So he, he certainly had every pitcher, you know, who was in their plans. And the position players are not yet to Las Vegas for the most part. And you wonder if, again, if they take him seriously as a, a developer of talent, they, you know, I don't know, they'd make it work as well. They look, you know, we, when, we, when we send Nimmo and Dominic Smith and Michael Conforto uh, up, the, up the chain, we want you to work with them. Or by the time that those individuals get to Las Vegas, and it's then all going to show up until next year, uh, it's not necessarily that big a deal. Who's their manager? I really don't know. But uh, you know, I, I think he—he, he, I would think he should be considered an option. I have no—I can't say. I've been sitting here uh, following uh, the Las Vegas 51 day in and day out, and I don't—I don't want to pretend I have it. But, uh, you know, he, he certainly got results, and he hasn't uh, made any enemies of the book. And, you know, Collins is Collins. And, you know, like I said, I, I think <laughs> Collins brings home, you know, a 79 and 83 team about that, that will be enough to get him, you know, return for a fifth year, at which point he can uh, – I, 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 I did the math uh, around Hall of Fame weekend um, – at some point next year, he will pass Joe Torrey as uh, the manager with the Mets history with the most games managed without a winning record. Unless, of course, he manages them to a winning record next year, and then he comes off the board. But to this point, he's uh, you know he's managed longer than anybody as a Mets manager other than Joe Torrey, and to have never had a winning record in any one season. So it's a kind of a dubious honor, but uh, mm-hmm. it's almost. This, it's almost as if uh, they sort of uh, installed him as manager in 2011 and kind of forgot about him. And uh, you look at them, I mean, they're dominating right now. Right? They have a 66-53 record, uh, 9.5 game lead in the uh, Pacific Coast League, okay. Southern, well, Pacific Southern. Well, when, when, you're, when you realize that the, you know, the Mets' strength has been, in the, in the uh, certainly in the upper minor leagues, has been pitching and that the Mets keep calling up their pitchers and that they're still winning, because you figure everybody hits in those leagues, um, that probably reflects well on Backman. Um, then again, you know what? 
if the Mets uh, catch fire and, you know, somehow win 84, 85 games, I, I, um, that will reflect well on Collins, and people like us will have to uh, grudgingly tip our cap and say, hey, maybe Terry's the guy. So uh, we shall see. Right. Every, every time I do, he, he reminds me of why I don't think he's the guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I, I, think I, I want to – kind of badly want to be convinced he is. I, I want to, because I, I kind of feel like I'm not seeing what, you know, these so-called pros are seeing that like, oh yeah, that's Harry Collins. He's, he's a real man's man. He's a real mensch, whatever. And it's like, really? So great about this guy. But uh, maybe it will uh, reveal itself to us in due time. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there with Darno, but um, I guess he what, struck out or something. Uh, yeah, I was looking away at that point. So, so three nothing. Still three nothing. Uh, we got we got um, Lucas Sud and David Wright got two out singles, and it looks like Darno grounded out into a forced out, fielded okay. by second baseman Danny Espinosa. Well, we've reached uh, an hour, Greg, um, and uh, I'm not sure exactly how much more time that you have, but I, I can go on for you know maybe another uh, fifteen twenty if uh, you're down. I, I can do that. I, I actually have. Uh... I, I know the show is about the New York National League legacy. I actually had uh, something I heard today I thought I would uh, pass along. Uh, sure. See where that takes us. I knew I heard something. It's, it's not any kind of news. Um, it just so happens that I had lunch with my old friend of mine, a guy who I, I've known since college. Uh, we, we actually we, we, we live near each other, but we see each other about every five years and only because they perfect this. And uh, he knows that I write about baseball, so we were talking about baseball. He's not a huge baseball fan, but he kind of knows his stuff. And he started telling me a story about. He said, "He said, did I ever tell you the Cal Abrams story?" And I'm like, "Why? Why no? You never have told me the Cal Abrams story." And my curiosity was deep because that's not the kind of name you would expect to hear come up in conversation with somebody who you know wasn't a Brooklyn Dodgers fan in 1950. And uh, the, the story was basically, he was remembering a guy he worked for, but this was my, my friend, uh, worked for many years ago, just out of college. Uh, you know, this gruff, no-nonsense, doesn't-want-to-be-bothered type of guy who ran some kind of uh, uh, factory. It was a shop, I don't remember. But um, somehow my friend and, and his boss, this guy, found themselves at some sort of function, some sort of affair, and who should walk in the door? Not that my friend would have recognized him, but Cal Abrams. And this guy was like, was such a, my friend's boss was such a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, carrying the torch well into the 1980s that he had hanging over his desk at work, a framed Daily News backstage that said, O'Malley's dead. That's uh, how, how happy he was. Quite frankly, that the guy who who stole his team away to to bring it back to that uh, with those thoughts of the franchises abandoning you uh, was so he's he's Cal Abrams now now you might think that the story would be oh he he saw one of the players he remembered from his youth and he was all excited well um, I guess as, as Dodger fans know Cal Abrams uh, ran with a piano on his back and was thrown out at home plate in a, a crucial moment of a crucial game that probably cost the Dodgers the 1950 pennant. So this guy, uh, the, the, the boss, shall we say, goes up to Cal Abrams and says, You're Cal Abrams. You ruined my childhood. <laughs> you ruined my wife. How could have you done this? And he's going on and on. Well, 
uh, you would figure security would come and, and take somebody away at that point. But uh, I guess uh, there was something in the air that, uh, and maybe Cal Abrams was a better sport than this guy imagined because by the end of the night, they were best buddies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Cal Abrams is, is practically, as, as my friend put it, sitting on this guy's lap. And uh, <laughs> for, for for years thereafter, uh, there would be a picture of the two of them uh, next to the headline that said O'Malley dead. And, and according to my friend, the, the guy who had been so gruff and unpleasant to be around was you know kind of changed from from that day forward, that meeting one of these players and actually hearing the stories and I, I guess actually uh, being satisfied that uh, Cal Abrams didn't mean to be thrown out at home in 1950 uh, <laughs> made him a happier person uh, all those years later. So uh, I, I guess the moral of, of that story is, uh, you know, never never underestimate the, uh, the longevity, let alone the power of the Brooklyn Dodgers to affect people's moods uh, if they were so inclined. So uh, that's, that's my, not my Cal Abrams story, and my friend tells it much better. But... Um, Somewhere in the New York metropolitan area today, uh, two people were talking about Cal Abrams of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and they weren't on a podcast. <laughs> Cal Ross, uh, Calvin Ross Abrams, uh, nicknamed AB, uh, was born March 2nd, 1924 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was an outfielder. He was a southpaw like me, batted left and threw left. Uh, he was six feet and 185 pounds. Uh, but went to high school at James Madison High School in Brooklyn, New York. Um, so that was interesting uh, that he was born in Philly and uh, got up to got up to Brooklyn. Uh, he was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers as an amateur free agent in 1949, and he made his major league debut at age 25.048, uh, April 19th, uh, 1949. And um, unfortunately, he uh, he is uh, the late great Cal Abrams. Uh, died February 25th, 1997, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, at age 72. Uh, 0.36, excuse me. Um, in four years for Brooklyn, he batted 241 with a 387 on base percentage and a 325 slugging percentage with a 711 OPS, uh, hitting three home runs and 23 RBIs, and uh, stealing uh, four bases and walking 54 times while striking out 49 times. Now, um, his first year, he only played in eight games, uh, 31 played appearances, and hit 083. Uh, in 1950, when he got thrown out at the plate and ruined this guy's childhood, um, he was batting 205 and uh, in only 44 at bats. But in 1951, uh, in 150 at bats, he hit 280 uh, with a 419 on base percentage and a 393 slugging. So, um, you know, you gotta you gotta say that uh, he he had a um, unfortunately, the Dodgers didn't leave a good taste in their fans' mouth at the end of this, uh, that year, but you can't. You have to say this is a pretty good utility numbers at uh, 150 at-bats. And in 1952, when he was traded to Cincinnati, um, and I will scroll down because I believe uh, we will, will have that information as to who he was traded for, um, he only made it 10 games into the season, uh, 12 plate appearances into the season with a 200 batting average before uh, he he was traded to Cincinnati. And he was traded uh, to by the Brooklyn Dodgers to the Cincinnati Reds for Rudy Roofer in cash. Have you ever heard the name Rudy Roofer? Rudy Roofer, yes. Yeah, so you said that I was thinking of the movie Rudy and, and Rudy Rudiger, but not the same guy, I guess. 
I, I do see, uh, as, as, as I'm uh, playing along at home here, that in the next uh, trade he was in, uh, which uh, sent him to the Pirates, uh, he was involved in a transaction with an original Nets. He yeah. uh, went uh, for uh, he and a couple of other players, uh, one of whom was named Joe Rossi, who was a character on the old show Lou Grant, but I don't know, fictional <laughs> character, he's a real ball player, uh, Gostel, uh, Casey Stengel's uh, original uh, right fielder. So a little bit of a uh, little bit of a connection to the mm-hmm. uh, to, to the Metropolitans there. Yeah, it's it's just funny uh, where we can start and where we can end up. Um, now uh, going to Rudy Roofer. What's really funny about Rudy Roofer is that he played in two years in 22 games in his major league career, both for the New York Giants, and never played a single game in the major leagues for Brooklyn. Um, I'm guessing he must have been a lifer down in the minor leagues. Yeah, which uh, is you know, more, more, more common in those days because there were so many more teams and you know, they weren't all necessarily affiliated with major league teams and some of these teams just wanted to have uh, you know, rep- representative players to, to draw fans. That's what I wanted to say about Cal Abrams. I mentioned the home plate uh, incident. I, I uh, brought up his uh, New York Times obituary from 1997 and you know, obituaries, of course, are, are meant to, at the very least, remain uh, sort of objective and usually put the deceased in a good light. It doesn't take until the fifth paragraph for uh, Mr. Abrams' obituary to come down to, he would long be remembered as a victim in a peace path fiasco on the final Sunday of the 1950 season, and it did delve into uh, what happened uh, when the Dodgers played the Phillies. And I, I guess, you know, and, and in this article, uh, you know, they, they compare uh, what happened to him to uh, what happened with Mickey Owens and uh, part of, you know, Dodger disaster war and <laughs> so forth. So, you know, you can make the major leagues. You can have, you know, your moments of, of success, certainly. And, you know, Cal Abrams played, played for some very good Dodger teams, and they certainly hoped he would, he would be the answer. Uh, and they, they always had a hard time filling left field. And, and also, they, uh, as the obituary points out, and uh, one of his other uh, calling cards was the fact that Cal Abrams was a Jewish ball player in New York, and there was always the desire, whether it was the Giants or Dodgers or Yankees, uh, so did you, if we can promote a, uh, a Jewish star, if we can have our own Hank Greenberg, that will bring in a lot more fans just because mm-hmm. that's sort of the way people thought in those days. Um, uh, you know, certainly what I'm saying is that Cal Abrams certainly had a lot going for him, apparently, as, as, a, as a professional baseball player. I, I will go on the limb and say that he probably had a lot going for him as a human being, um, but you make a mistake in a pennant race, and what do they write in your obituary? <laughs> then he got thrown out at home, and you know you're you're going through life. You're retired three years from uh, Major League Baseball, as he was when when this uh, when my friend's story took place. And you walk into uh, whatever the function was, and you've got some some nunnick from the Bronx uh, coming up to you and saying, "You ruined my life by getting thrown out at home." So. Uh, it's a double-edged sword, I suppose. Um, this, this was, um, you know, I, I just segue briefly, uh, not a Brooklyn Dodger uh, situation, but um, 
a few weeks ago, uh, my, my blog partner and I were in a discussion uh, about uh, something we're, we're trying to determine, that there, there have been 981 different players that played for the Mets, and figured if, if we're, so they're still going to have 1,000. What I want to do is put together a ranking of the top 1,000 Mets when that happens. And we all know Seaver's going to be number one. And whoever is in the other 999 spot, what interests me is how do you say who's number 1,000? Because you can't really do it on performance. Because, you know, there are a lot of guys who came up for one or two at-bats and uh, you know, didn't get a hit or they pitched a third of an inning and didn't get anybody out. But we, we were talking, we, the phrase that uh, Jason came up with was, was, was most inconsequential, least consequential which, you know, we, we started debating, and I, I had this discussion with a few people, and one name keeps coming up, which, or, you know, when I say keeps coming up, at least a couple of people brought it up, and it's kind of surprising because he's, you know, so I don't like to use the word obscure because when, when you spend as much time dealing with Mets history as I do, nobody is obscure. But the name <laughs> Luke, Luke Hunchuk, uh was an outfielder, or excuse me, he was an infielder, he was not an outfielder, uh, who kind of passed through the Mets in 1966, had five at bat, went 0 for 5, struck out four times, didn't do a double play, I think. And he's just one of those guys, when you see the name, it's like, Luke Klimchuk, who the hell is that? So I had, had uh, written about this. Uh, I said, you know, in so many words, uh, you know, that Luke Klimchuk had a pretty inconsequential Met career. Well, within 24 hours, Thanks to the way things work today, I got a what I think was a a, a nice note uh, from Luke Klinschuk's daughter, <laughs> who uh, somehow through through the magic of social media had seen the fact that her father was mentioned. Her father, her father's alive and well, and has done some things for the uh, the major legal on my offices. Uh, he's out in Arizona, and sent a picture of him that he's doing well, and then wanted us to know that. Uh, you know, he, he's still out there. And, uh, of course, I went back and I read what I wrote. Like, did I say anything, like, horribly insulting about this man I never met because I don't want to do that? <laughs> and, you know, I, I just basically said he went 0 for 5 and nobody, you know, and, he, and he's, sort of, he's sort of well-known for not being well-known. And, you know, I, I, this caused me to do a little more research about it. You know, the guy made the major league at the age of 18, which in itself is pretty noteworthy. And, you know, other than that, you know, he kind of bounced around and, I think he was either, was either considered slick fielding or, or terrible fielding. I have to admit, I have to go look it up. But, uh, but in other words, you know, we sit and we see these guys from a distance, whether it's Cal Abrams or Luke Lindchuk or, or John Neese, and you know, we sort of have our way with them when we discuss them because they are, you know, they, they play a role in, in our concept of, of what we enjoy so much. But you know, these are guys who made the major leagues, and even if they had a cup of coffee, as the saying goes, and it was not a, uh, there was no refill on the cup of coffee. It's still admirable, you know, and assuming that they, uh, you know, that didn't break any laws and haven't abused any uh, people or animals on the way, you know, you, you sort of want to applaud those guys. Um, I might make an exception for Tom Glavin, but that's just to my taste. <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's got enough people putting plaques in the Hall of Fame for him, but uh, it's just interesting. I, I would like to think that... Uh, Again, I, I I had no truck with the, the late Cal Abrams. I have no truck with uh, Luke Klimchuk. Um, you know, even if I met Tom Glavin, I don't think I would attack him <laughs> uh, or call up to him and say, you ruined my 2007 and you sort of <laughs> ruined my 
concept of what the Mets could be and put me in a sour mood for the next seven years, although it kind of sounds <laughs> like I would say that. <laughs> but, uh, you might have just said that. Maybe he's listening. Yeah, well, I, I would say the bigger story here is that you have a Hall of Famer listening to Bedford and Sullivan. Right, which case, exactly. I think, be, I, I think we would applaud that from Tom Blavin as much as anything. He's good to you know, podcast. What's What's interesting is that there's a list of uh, similarity scores on baseball reference on the Cal Abrams baseball reference page, and it says similar batters in terms of stats. Uh, oh, I guess, uh, yeah, they, I've seen they, some of these names. Yeah, Larry, we have... Uh, starting with Larry Rosenthal, then Jerome Walton, then Fred Lewis, then, who was a brief Met, then Eric Tipton, then Lasting's Millage, as we Lasting's know. Lasting's Millage, Christopher, yep. and then after George Vukovich, Timo Perez. And you it know that, that some, when Timo Perez's obituary is published, it may not be for a long time, may he have a long life, you know that got thrown out at home because he jaked it running around the bases on Todd Field's <laughs> double in game one of the 2000 World Series will appear in the top five paragraphs uh, if they still have obituaries and newspapers or <laughs> whatever this is. Um, and you know what's uh, remarkable is that he is um, 40 years old, almost 40 years old. He's, he's yeah, 39 years old. Yeah, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. And, yep. Uh, yeah, no, gosh, I mean, Timo... Came up September of 2007. I mean, I remember that he you know, he wasn't a kid. He had played in the in uh, Taipei or somewhere in Asia, so he, he wasn't you know exactly a uh, a hot prospect until that year. He was burning up uh, Norfolk at the time, the Miss Triple A place, and uh, he had a, a good September. And he was a savior at the top of the lineup, if if you recall. Uh, October of 2000, Derek Bell, who had been in about five months old at that point, uh, went down uh, on, on the grass in Pac-Hell Park, now AT&T Park, and hit the Giants. And Timo... Penance on a Monday night in October of 2000. And the American League Championship Series was still underway. If Major League Baseball had a, suddenly had, a, for some strange reason, a strike or a lockout, the only team that would have won a pennant, the only team that would have had a, a flag, would have been the Mets because there was the American League still wasn't settled. And honestly, for those 24 hours between the Mets beating the Cardinals on that Monday night and then on Tuesday night finding out who their opponent was going to be in the World Series and then the uh, you know the run-up and then, of course, the actual World Series. Um, that 24 hours was, you know, putting aside 1986, um, about as happy as I've ever been as a fan, probably because in some way we were, uh, well, we weren't world champions yet and still aren't, but uh, we were the only champions, the only league champions there were. So if you could have just ended the story right there, the 2000 Mets are an unadulterated success, and Timo Perez is a hero for all time in the flushing. And instead, all he's really known for, even though he played a few more years, and I was at a, a merengue night in 2001 where he had a walk-off bit and people waved Dominican flags, and it was very exciting. All Timo Perez is known for is slowing down and going into a trot when, in fact, it was a live ball, and Derek Jeter turned out his own plate and uh, changed the trajectory of that series and, and, and ruined a perfectly good October. 
And uh, in short, what his obituary is going to be about. It may he live long and, and, and we not need a chemo parish obituary for many years to come. It's it's so remarkable because, you know, he did have a good 2002, but the Mets didn't. And uh, 2001, probably one of the reasons why the Mets didn't do better in 2001 was because he was not that good. Well, he was of he was one of a string of, and really until Granderson, and only because Granderson has a contract, and we don't know what's going to happen. And really, you you go back to Daryl Strawberry leaving, and the Mets have not had a continuing right fielder for more than a couple of years at a time for almost 25 years now. And Timo was part of that. I mean, Timo had basically, uh, you know, won the job by default, and they ended up sending him to Norfolk at some point that year. Now, that was the year they had to, uh, or they decided they had to make a trade for Matt Lawton to be the, uh, the lead-off there. They you know, gave up a good pitcher in Rick Reed, and, you know, a lot, had a nice on-base percentage, I recall, but it really wasn't the answer. And then, you know, they, they flipped him for Roberto Alomar, which, you know, it, it, to me is the other highlight of Timo Perez's career. Uh, you know what? I think it was Roger Cedeno, so I have to take it away. I was about to say um, Timo and Roberto Alomar, but it was Roger Cedeno and Roberto Alomar in 2002, and Alomar was being kind of a... Uh, kind of sulking and uh, just generally being not who we thought he would be. Um, Roger Cedeno decides to have some fun and, and hang up a really embarrassing-looking Topps baseball. Maybe it was Topps. It was weird. I don't know. It was a baseball rookie card of Roberto Alomar's from you know, the late 80s where he had an embarrassing hairstyle. And basically the point was to say, hey, didn't Robbie Alomar look funny when he was a kid? And Roberto Alomar just kind of being the Glavin-esque type personality he turned into, uh, you know, started, like, one time a fight right then and there with Sedano, and Mo Vaughn had to break it up. So I was going to give Timo Perez... <laughs> Didn't that, doesn't, that just, doesn't that just that, uh, sum that, up, that was, sum, like, sum the whole thing up? Yeah, you know, that, that was just, you know, that just was just one of, of many type incidents that seemed to plague the Mets in, in the early uh, part of post. After Timo Perez gets thrown out of the plate in 2000, and then for the next four or five years, stuff like that just kept happening, and it just wasn't pleasant. But uh, it, it's just know. like it's it's the um, basically ever since uh, the Molina home run, everything's gone downhill. Yeah, and although I tell you what, the joke uh, made, the, the joke is on us. Uh, if we're talking about Timo Perez uh, costing us uh, the, the pleasure of a world championship, because as you look at his page, you are reminded that he was a member of the 2005 World Champion White Sox. Right. And uh, played in that World Series, I believe. Yeah, he, he sure did. So he, he got himself a ring. I know he was on the the 06 uh, Cardinals, was not on their postseason roster. I don't, and I, I don't know what they're... Still their, gets the ring. Uh, yeah, yeah you know, every organization handled that differently, but he probably got a, he probably got consecutive rings in one year from the team that uh, you know kept the Mets out of the World Series. So while, while we're sitting here uh, gnashing our teeth and holding grudges, uh, Timo Perez, if he is so inclined, uh, can w- look in his his uh, hope chest, his jewelry box, whatever he keeps it in, and say, "Hey, here are my World Series rings," uh, and, and, and turn around, yeah, yep. and turn and, and then turn around and flip us off. <laughs> Perhaps I, you know, I, I wonder, um, and of course the, the Mets have not given us much reason to uh, to, to to see it tested. Um, you know, when they have brought back 
the 69 team, for example, or the 86 team. I mean, basically everybody who played on those World Series in those postseasons, same for, you know, when they actually did honor 73 back, you know, before 2013 when they didn't, but I, I never seem to tire of pointing out, you know, they brought back whoever made it to the postseason. Now, they haven't really done anything for the 2010 winners. I mean, they had, like, a really tough... Well, in 2010, week. they kind of had something, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, like, so they had six guys there during the Subway Series for their alumni event, but they have not done a full-out salute to their last National League champions. My question is that they have at least two guys who are, to put it mildly, anathema to most Mets fans. Timo Perez, although I think Timo is... is at this point, time has faded, and I, I don't think you would have riots about it if he showed up and, and, and waved his cap. Armando Benitez is, a, is another story, and I really wonder if they will ever invite Armando Benitez back to, if, if indeed they ever honor those 99-2000 teams, because he was the closer on those teams. He, definitely, <laughs> he, he holds the saves record. He was, you know, a really good relief pitcher except when you really needed a really good relief pitcher. And yet, you know, I don't think any of that matters to anybody. All anybody remembers is he blew this game or that game or another game. And, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, uh, you know he probably lives in, you know, in the Dominican Republic, so it's not necessarily easy for him to travel to, uh, on, a, on a whim to, uh, to New York. Um, I just wonder, like, if there will be a gap in the years ahead, assuming the Mets you know, maintain any kind of alumni program, that you know, we see the 2000 guys and the 2006 guys who do not necessarily leave with the cleanest of slates or, or the happiest of memories. And, you know, again, I, time softens the edges, and people who, players who people kind of turned up their nose at when they left the Mets will probably. To somewhere down the line, be welcome back with open arms. In the same way that you, you know, get nostalgic for songs you didn't really like when you were in high school, that kind of thing. But I mean, there, you know, Armando Benitez, I, I have never heard of. You know, the Mets have never put any kind of thing on the scoreboard that said, "Hey, everybody, here, here's a great day in Mets history featuring Armando Benitez." Or, uh, and they certainly erased Tom Glavin from the historical record to the most. That they could, and I, and I applaud them for that to a certain degree. But uh, you know, at some at some point, you kind of have to suck it up and say these were the guys who got you to the playoffs and played a role. Um, it's other, if, you, if you're not doing that, then you're propped up basically. And uh, I won't be curious to see if uh, you know the Mets ever had any kind of. Hey, they, they've never brought Bobby Valentine back on the field, as far as I can remember. Yeah, I mean, that's he's true. Stuff for SNY, and he's been in the yeah, ballpark. Yeah, he, he does work for them. But, you know, he went when they, they, had a, they did a 9-11, the 9-11 commemoration, the 10th anniversary. He was there for ESPN, and they did not uh, – I, I believe he was there for ESPN. Um, I, yes, 2011. So he, he was not managing Japan. He was not managing the Red Sox. And uh, the, the ESPN did that game, and he was there. And they did not say, you know, have Bobby Valentine come down and tip his cap. I mean, nobody worked harder – uh, from a Met perspective in terms of reaching out to the families and then making kids mm-hmm. happy and then putting himself into it. And, you know, certainly he, Valentine, when he has his detractors among fans, 
But, um, you know, he, I don't think there, he, he has a black mark against him. I mean, it's, it's long enough ago that he was fired that nobody really cares anymore that Art Howe replaced him and that, uh, you know, players were caught uh, smuggling marijuana into peanut butter jars into Shea Sabian or whatever the hell it was they were doing. So, um, portrait of history changes as it goes. Um, not, not to get too deep or far afield, I mean, this, this week is the 40th anniversary of uh, Nixon resigning the presidency. And, you know, I've been reading a couple of things about how, you know, the, there was a time where if you mentioned Richard Nixon, you know, of course he was this reviled figure, and then Nixon and some other people went about rehabilitating his image, and he sort of became this statesman when he was alive and even in death. It's like, well, you know, sure, Nixon had that whole Watergate thing, and violating the Constitution, but, you know, he, he he signed off on the EPA, so therefore he wasn't so bad. And, you know, you, you could use this for, for any president, any historical figure, that our, our concepts of, of what they are and who they are change. And, in a way, you know, to bring it all back to Bedford and Sullivan, you know, the, the, with the Dodgers, this this wacky uh, team that uh, could, couldn't uh, put one foot in front of the other, or, or were they this team that, uh, you know, was one of the great historical icons uh and one of the great powerhouses of all time, and uh, you know what is their legacy, and then that's something that uh, we just keep exploring. Absolutely, and in doing so, right now uh, the Mets are, are trying to put something together um, with one out. Um, Curtis Granderson it looks like he got a, a, a single on a bunt ground ball, uh, which I'd be interested to see how how that went about happening. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, it's been a remarkable talk, uh, Greg, and uh, I, as always, you know, thank you for uh, for you know weaving uh, the uh, the the crazy streets um, uh, with me, uh, you know, because uh, with you and me on these 